Broadcasting live from the North Fulton Business Radio X studio, it's time for To Your Health with Dr. Jim Morrow. To Your Health is brought to you by Morrow Family Medicine, an award-winning primary care practice, which brings the care back to health care. Hello, and thank you once again for joining us for To Your Health. I am Dr. Jim Morrow, and I appreciate very much when people stop by and listen, whether you're listening live to us today on the 23rd of December, or if you're listening to this, download it as a podcast sometime later because you're interested in our topic. I appreciate very much the fact that you would take the time and would join us uh, for the podcast. So thank you very much for that. I'm on vacation this week, so because of that, I'm in our home in Blue Ridge, Georgia. Uh, my newfangled uh, studio here that's not really much of a studio, but it gets the job done while my producer, John Ray, is in his voluptuous studio there at his home. How are you, John? I'm great. Um, I've never heard my studio described quite that way, but thank you for that. I'm pretty sure that's not the right word. My mother would roll over in a grave if she heard that, I'm sure. But <laughs> you're all decked out, and I'm glad to see you. You don't have a a Christmas tree in there, I don't think, but happy holidays, Merry Christmas. Happy holidays and Merry Christmas to you. It's been a interesting interesting year that we've uh we've had. It's we this is our last show of twenty twenty and it's been quite a year. It is our last one and everybody keeps talking about getting rid of twenty twenty. I just wish anything that the first half of twenty twenty one would be any different and I don't really know that it's going to be. Uh the vaccine is out two of them, and I'm very excited about that. I'm going to start off talking about those a little bit today. Um, they are vaccinating healthcare workers in our, in our area, and I'm hopeful that next week when I get back to work, I'll be able to get my vaccine. So that sounds like a real good thing to me. I'm very excited about that. I did want to start today by talking a little bit of a comparison between the two vaccines, the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccine. But um, really, there's not a great deal of difference. Uh, the two are very, very similar. The Pfizer vaccine is authorized in people 16 and older. Moderna's authorized in people 18 and older. Uh, they have been doing some testing in younger people, 12 to 17, but that data is not in yet, so it's not approved there yet. But the efficacy is essentially the same. It's 94, 95% uh, for both vaccines, so that's great. The FDA had said early on that they would approve a vaccine that was 51% effective. And so 94 and 95% really uh, outshined anything anybody anticipated happening. So we're very excited about that. Both vaccines are two doses. The Moderna vaccine, you get a dose today and another dose 28 days from now. And it's very important that you get that. If you don't get the second dose, you've not been vaccinated. And the Pfizer vaccine is one dose now and are those 21 days from now. And again, the timing is very important. Uh, side effect profile, really very, very similar. No one has had significant side effects from this at all. Uh, both vaccines proven to be very, very effective and of course, very safe as well. So that's great. Storage requirements are different. The Pfizer vaccine has to be stored at minus 94 degrees Fahrenheit. Not a lot of people can get to that in the office or anywhere else. So distribution is a little bit tricky. The Moderna vaccine is good at uh, regular freezer temperature and also can be stable in a regular refrigerator for 30 days. So that's good. The Pfizer vaccine, interestingly, you have to use the vial 
within a, a few hours, I think it might even be an hour of con reconstituting the vial. So it's, it's a little bit of a challenge, but that's the one people have the most of right now. So they seem to be working through that and not having a great deal of difficulty. So the bottom line on the vaccine is if you have a chance to get one, get one. It doesn't matter if you've had COVID or not. If you've had COVID, you need a vaccine. If you've not had COVID, you need a vaccine. The bottom line is you need a vaccine. We've got to get 75 or 80% of the population vaccinated before we can really get a handle on this pandemic. Uh, so I, I think we're heading there. I think we'll get there. Uh, but I don't think it's going to be fast because of the logistics, if nothing else. So that's the coronavirus update for today. December 23rd, this is episode 47, almost two years now we've been doing this. And I, I was thinking about topics for today, and I would appreciate if anyone has topic information or ideas or suggestions, if you would send those to us, you can do that via email to drjim, it's drjim at toyourhealth.md, or you can do that uh, via Twitter. On Twitter, we are at toyourhealthmd. And you can tweet us, you can email us, you can drop me a line, you can come by the office and tell me. But if you have ideas for a topic, I'd love to hear them. So today I want to talk about something that we see in the office in family medicine with some regularity. And it can be very frustrating for both us and for the patient. And that's the topic of health anxiety. Health anxiety is an obsessive, irrational worry about having some serious medical condition. That's basically the definition of health anxiety. It's also called illness anxiety, and it's what we used to call being a hypochondriac. And being a hypochondriac sort of took on a less than favorable tone, so now we say you have health anxiety. But the bottom line is if you have health anxiety, you're a hypochondriac. So that's the way it needs to be understood. And it's, it's marked by a person's imagination of physical symptoms of an illness. In some cases, it's a person's misinterpretation of minor or normal, even body sensations. Sometimes you might feel something that's perfectly normal, but you make it out to be a big thing in your mind. And so it, it kind of takes over and it controls your thoughts, which is the obsessive part of that. So there is a difference, though, between having a concern for your health, which everyone should have, and having health anxiety. Okay, so if your body's sending you signs that you're ill, it's normal to be concerned. It's normal to be anxious and, and want to get more information about that. But health anxiety is marked by a constant belief that you have a symptom or you have symptoms of a severe illness. You, you might even become so consumed by worry that this becomes disabling. And I've seen that in, in some cases. So if you're concerned about your health, the rational thing to do is see your doctor. Another rational thing to do is to believe what he tells you. So if he tells you that, no, you don't have porcoloderma congenitalia of Rothman, you take that and you go with it. You don't say, yeah, but I have these two symptoms that 1% of people have one-tenth of a percent of the time, and that's that. So you have, to, you have to be willing to accept what you're being told. Sometimes that's not easy, and it's not necessarily even a a conscious choice that you're making is just the way you are. And sometimes that is the case. So if you are concerned about your health, see your doctor. Uh, if you have health anxiety, you could easily feel extreme distress about these symptoms. Even after medical tests come back, 
and they show that they're negative and the doctor tries to reassure you that you're healthy. And this condition goes beyond having a normal concern. It has the potential to interfere with your quality of life in major ways. It can interfere with your ability to work, uh, to go to school, to just function on a daily basis, and to create and maintain meaningful relationships. It can be very difficult. So understanding what causes people to feel anxious about, like that about their health, to feel this health anxiety, we really aren't sure the exact causes, just like we're not sure about the exact causes of many mental and emotional things. But there's several factors that we think are involved. One is you have a poor understanding of diseases, which is understandable, of your body sensations or both of these things. And if you do have a problem with both of those things, then when you feel some of these sensations, it makes it easy to understand how you might think that you have this, that, or the other problem. You might think of, you have a serious disease that's causing these sensations, and this can lead you to, to search for evidence that confirms that you actually have that disease. And sometimes this search can be overwhelming. It can just really take over your life. Sometimes you have a family member who worries excessively about their health, and that can make you lead to doing the same thing. Or you might have had past experiences with a serious, real illness in childhood or sometime previously. And as an adult, you then have these physical sensations that are frightening to you. So it can be understandable. It just isn't always something that you can do to change it. The problem of health anxiety occurs most often in the early and middle adulthood, but it can absolutely get worse with age, just like many things can. And for older people, health anxiety often focuses on developing memory problems. And I, I see people daily, I guess, in the office who are concerned about their memory. It's a common part of the conversation between me and a patient. Uh, and you know, I'm, I'm always willing to go over what constitutes a true memory problem or just a memory problem and what is dementia. And that's an interesting conversation. I refer you back to a previous podcast with Dr. Pete Futrell when we were talking about dementia in a previous episode. So there's some risk factors that you might have or look for that can lead to health anxiety. And one is a stressful event or situation, like I mentioned earlier, possibly an illness that happened earlier that turned out not to be too serious, but sets you on a path of being concerned about this. Even being abused as a child can have a part in this. Or having a parent who had a serious illness and you were a, a part of that experience with them. So sometimes that's the problem. If you have a worrying personality, and a lot of people are just that way. They just, they don't seek things to worry about, although we as their friends and, and uh, cohorts might feel like they search for a thing to worry about, but they just worry about everything. And then, of course, checking excessively about your health on the internet. Uh, if there's any one thing that's made health anxiety worse over the years, it absolutely is the internet. Uh, just like we have a problem with people having such access that they do to information about coronavirus, people having access to information about anything. And if you Google severe headache, you're not going to find migraine headache is the first thing you come to in a Google search. You're going to find subarachnoid hemorrhage and stroke as one of the first things that you see. And so you're going to think that must be what this is because this is what came up. So that can be a problem. I mentioned earlier that I am with Mara Family Medicine, 
And at Mara Family Medicine, we're doing everything we can to keep people safe and make them healthier. We have two locations, one in Cumming, Georgia, and one in Milton, Georgia. And we are currently seeing well patients, physicals, blood pressure checks, diabetes rechecks, cholesterol, things like that, orthopedic injuries in the coming location, well people in the coming location. And we're seeing sick people in our Milton location. So if you have any symptoms that might be even close to being coronavirus, we're going to see you in our Milton location. We do have the uh, Abbott ID Now uh, machines for doing rapid tests. We've had them since September. Uh, we've had the test cartridges for about 10 days. So we just now got the test cartridges so we can actually start doing rapid tests. Takes about 20 minutes in total uh, to tell you if you have coronavirus or not. And this test is very accurate. Uh, it's accurate down to 50,000 RNA units, which is uh, not enough even to make you contagious. So if you are positive with that, you can be sure that you're positive and you're more, most likely contagious as well. So back to health anxiety. Diagnosing health anxiety is an interesting process. Sometimes it's incredibly obvious uh, because you're seeing someone for the fourth time with the same symptoms that don't amount to anything and you're having a hard time convincing them and you realize then that this person has health anxiety. But it, it used to be, as I mentioned, called hypochondriasis or known as hypochondria. The person with it was a hypochondriac, but it's no longer listed in the American Psychological Association's Manual of Mental Disorders actually has a book that lists all of the mental disorders. It's called DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, and they're probably on their fifth or sixth edition now. When I was in school, everything was referred to as being in DSM-3, and I'm sure they are long past that now, but it's not listed there anymore. People now are classified as having illness anxiety or somatic symptom disorder. And all those amount to the same thing. All these are different ways of saying that you worry too much and you're obsessing too much about your health and your health concerns. But to get to the diagnosis, your doctor needs to perform a physical exam to rule out the things you're concerned about. That makes sense. If you're healthy, he may refer you to a therapist because sometimes that's a better way to treat that. And a therapist would probably perform a psychological evaluation, including questions about your symptoms and stressful situations in your family history and things you're worried about and the issues that affect your life. And this in a great way is not terribly different from what a therapist would do for anyone at the very beginning. And he also might want you to fill out a psychological self-assessment or questionnaire. And that's just another way to try to, to get to know your psyche and to get to know what makes you tick and what makes you you. And, and to get to the bottom line of why you might have health anxiety. And then they're also going to ask you about your use of drugs and alcohol and other substances, because as you can imagine, this is the kind of thing that absolutely can play a part in this. So according to the American Psychiatric Association, the, the term illness anxiety disorder is characterized by a preoccupation with having or coming down with an illness not having physical symptoms even, or having symptoms that are incredibly mild, and, a, and a, an excessive preoccupation about some existing medical condition you have or you have a family history of. So you might be concerned to the nth degree that you have colon cancer, 
in spite of because you have a family member that had colon cancer, in spite of having had a colonoscopy and other studies and CAT scans and so forth, you can't unconvince yourself, I'm sure that's a word, that you don't have colon cancer. So it's something you continue to think about and obsess about, and that pretty much is the definition. You know, and there are treatments for this, and the treatments are basically two. There's therapy and there's medication. Now, the therapy, psychotherapy, uh, involves typically cognitive behavioral therapy, and there are therapists that do this sort of therapy in every community probably in the country. It can be very effective in helping to treat health anxiety because it teaches you skills that you can use to help manage this disorder. It's sort of a teach you to treat yourself kind of thing. And you can do this individually, or sometimes you might do it in a group. And some of the benefits are that you can identify the things that you're worried about and the things that you believe to be the case. And you can learn other ways to look at your body sensations other than that they are dangerous or harmful to you. Therapy also helps to raise your awareness of how your worries affect you and how they affect your behavior. So if you can figure that out and understand that, sometimes it makes it easier to change that worry. It can also help you respond differently to these body sensations, uh, whether it's itching or headache or a, an abdominal pain that you don't understand. They can help you to cope better with that and to understand better what that means for you and to avoid have you avoid examining your body for signs and symptoms of illness repeatedly, even though you feel healthy? Now, there are other forms of therapy that might help. One is behavioral stress management. I think there are very few people out there in 2020 who wouldn't benefit from behavioral stress management. I think we all would benefit from that. Uh, some people have even used exposure therapy, uh, where they try to expose you to a condition and let you see what it really is like so that you can see how your experience is very different from what anyone else might feel. And I think that, is, although it, it sounds a little bit radical, I think that might actually be a good way to go about it. Because if you don't understand what the disease really looks like, it's easier, I think, to think that this little tweak that you feel might be related to a serious illness. And then the other way to treat this is with medications. And medications are, are tricky in anxious people in general, but they're especially tricky with people with health anxiety. Uh, if your health anxiety improves with therapy, you may not need medication. But if it doesn't, then you might need one of the many medicines that we use for this. And most of them fall in the category of SSRIs, the serotonin-specific reuptake inhibitors. And these are medicines that we've talked about and talking about depression and so forth on other podcasts. They're medications that pure and simply raise the serotonin level in your brain. And serotonin is a chemical in your brain that often when you are depressed or have anxiety of any type, these levels can be depleted and depressed. And if you don't raise that chemical level, you're just not going to feel the way you think you should feel. So it's important as a physician to try to help the patient understand how this medicine can help them. Where it gets tricky is that people who are anxious are anxious already and people with health anxiety are anxious about medications. So it can be incredibly difficult to get one of these people to start taking a medication for their health anxiety. Because I can promise you the first thing they're going to do is they're going to Google side effects of this medication. 
and they're going to see all the potential side effects. And if we all read about all the potential side effects from a medication and we had this going on and we believed that might happen to us, none of us would ever take a medication. You would not take Tylenol if you read the package insert for Tylenol and you believed that these things were going to happen to you. Not that they could because they're in there because it's a possibility, but the possibility is not equal to the likelihood. It's a very different thing. And so trying to get someone to take medicine like this is tricky. The first time they take it, you have to start incredibly low on the dose because you want them to start getting it in their system a little bit at a time and get accustomed to it. If you don't do it that way, the likelihood of them developing a side effect that will keep them from ever taking it again is extreme. And then you've got a medication that you just can't use, and it might very well be the one that would help them out of this. So you have to be very, very careful with that. And yet you have to spend a lot of time explaining to the patient what might happen, the likelihood or lack of likelihood that it will happen, and that you're going to do that. You're going to start low on the dose and try to get them to a place where they don't feel so anxious. I can't say that medication is going to make them not ever worry because I mentioned earlier that sometimes people just have a worrying personality. That's just who they are. And if you know people like this, you already know what I'm talking about. Or if that's you, you know what I'm talking about. Because this doesn't happen in a vacuum. People are well aware that they are worriers. They just may not be aware that they're taking this to a degree that it doesn't need to be taken. So if you start on these medications, what you would hope you would find was would be that you tolerate it because you started low on the dose and you work your way up. And then also that it starts after what's probably going to be a few weeks to a month starting low on the dose that it starts to have some impact on how you're feeling about things. And really that's, that's when you start to feel a little bit better and breathe a little easier that everything you feel doesn't mean you're having a heart attack or appendicitis or COVID or anything else. Now the outlook for health anxiety over time is it seems to get worse, as I mentioned earlier, with age. And so if that's the case, seeking help early is very important. But if you, if you do seek help and you stick to your treatment plan, it's very possible for you to reduce your health anxiety symptoms so you can improve your daily functioning and decrease your overall worries. And I can tell you right now, if you do that, you're going to enjoy everyday life more. You're going to enjoy your family more. You're going to feel like you can experience things around you more fully. And you're going to be better off all the way around if you're able to do that. So if you feel like you or someone you love is having these symptoms, I highly encourage you to get them to a family physician so that they can have the conversation and you can start seeing what can be done to make them feel better and to make them feel more at ease with their own body. And John, that is health anxiety. So... This is not really a question about the um, condition itself, but um, just how you talk to somebody that you think may have it. I mean, you know, because that, you know, what you're telling people is what they're uh, feeling is not really right. And we've all, we've all, we were joking before we came on the air about family members that we have that we, that, that uh, we, we've joked about for years that always have some sort of condition and would rather be sick than not be sick. I mean, but how seriously, how do you have a, a conversation with somebody that doesn't want to believe 
that they're okay. Well, I, I think that goes to the the basis of family medicine as I see it in general, just across the board, which is you have to have a relationship with that person. Mm. It's very difficult. If you see a person you've never met before, a patient you've never met before for the very first time, and you try to tell them, look, you don't have that. That's not what that is. You're feeling something that's very normal. And what you're thinking is there is just not there. They're going to go and they're going to find another doctor. So it, it takes some time. It's not easy because they're there to get an answer. And you, I do feel like if the very first time you see somebody like that, you just spill out to them, look, this isn't what that is. You're not feeling that. That's not really what that is at all. I don't think they're going to believe you because they have no reason on earth to trust you. And so I think developing a relationship is very important. And it's not easy in that situation. I think you have to take it a little bit of time and explain, well, let's do this and check this thing and let's check that. And the second or third time you see them in a fairly short time frame, then I think you can bring out the idea that, you know, I think what this is, is that you're worrying and obsessing overly about your health in general. And I, I feel like the way we go about treating this is this way, not trying to treat this disease that you really don't seem to have at all. What are the most that relationship? Right. What are the most most common diseases that folks with health anxiety claim to have that they don't have? Cancer by far, any cancer by far is uh, probably the number one thing. Uh, and then heart disease is probably a close second. Uh, people are concerned about that because they understand that if you have a chest pain, it might be your heart. If you get short of breath, it might be your heart. Of course, it might also be 35 other things that in certain people are a lot more likely than heart disease. Um, but I think those two things probably top the list. Uh, COVID really, interestingly, has not been uh, one of those because uh, I think people understand that the majority of people that get that are going to do fine with it. Uh, so they don't really obsess about that too much. Okay. Now, uh, we've got a question here on the vaccines. Yeah. So you made the comment that, um, was it 70 or 80% of us need to get this vaccine in order About that 75 or 80. Yeah. So, uh, what does that mean that, uh, the vaccine is not effective? Let's say, uh, I get it in the next, uh, month or two is it it's not a really effective until 75 or 80 percent of the people out there get it um no it means that well first off in in an individual 10 days after you get that second dose you're considered immune so you would be immune <clears throat> but then all the other people out there are still spreading around one to another mm. and causing large numbers of illness and so we've got to get a large percentage of the population immune to it so that the odds of running into someone who you can get it from or give it to are much less. If we've got only 20% of America or the, or the globe who is passing it from one to the other, these numbers we're seeing are going to come down tremendously pretty quickly. Uh, but we've got to get large numbers because you've got to get to a situation where running into somebody with it is a lot less likely than running into someone who's immune to it. Mm. Okay. Okay. Gotcha. And, um, 
and you uh shared when we were off the air you've got you you've got a uh appointment coming up to get your own vaccine right as an essential right. work as essential uh first line person yeah our uh local hospital is is giving them to doctors and to parts of their staff they don't even have enough to give them to their entire staff right now mm. um but the physicians are getting them now and soon after the mid-levels will be as way I understand it and then the rest of their staff and so forth uh, but they are giving them as quickly as they can get them. They're, they're working seven days a week from 6.30 in the morning until about 8 o'clock at night giving vaccines. And they're trying to bunch them into groups because they're right now they have the Pfizer vaccine, as we understand it. And so the Pfizer vaccine, once you reconstitute it, you've got to give it in a hurry. So you basically have to have people lined up right there so you know you're not going to waste any because that's one of the worst things you could do right now be to waste a vaccine dose. Mm. <clears throat> so they're going to be they're going to be given those and continue to, uh, and hopefully they'll be able to get the Moderna vaccine, which gives them a lot more leeway as far as time after it's reconstituted. Now, one other question we've got here. So there was a, uh, some sort of mutation of the virus reported in UK, right? You, you have any com- okay. Do you have any comments about that? And how that affects the effectiveness of the vaccine is the question. Absolutely. And I should have thought to talk about that. And I'm so glad that someone asked us about that. So thank you. Um, There has not been any mutation of this vaccine to this point that changes anything about its immunogenicity. It's had numerous mutations. RNA viruses mutate a lot. It's had numerous mutations, but nothing about it has changed how your body reacts to it from an immune le- on an immune level. So the vaccine is still going to work. The vaccine is fine against this, I think it's G614 mutation is the one that they're concerned about. Um, the people in the United Kingdom, in my opinion, are being a little bit overly cautious uh, because of this, because it really doesn't seem to change much of anything at all. It doesn't change severity it might change a little bit about how easily you can contract it, but it doesn't change anything about the severity of the infection that you would end up with. And the vaccine is still going to work. And my suspicion is because it's not mutated into a new strain of immunogenicity that the vaccine we get today will be very similar to the vaccine we get in future years, and it'll continue to work. There's just nothing about this that makes me concerned that we're going to go through this all over again in 2021 or anything like that. That's very far-fetched and there's really no science to back that up at all. Gotcha. That's what we've got. And I really appreciate that question because that's a, a very good point that I know people are very concerned about. So we'll have the show notes on the website and as we always do, And I appreciate everyone listening. But, John, for now, that is to your health.